Good morning, and I'm very happy to be with you. Let's open our Bible to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 18 through 30. If you're ever in Nashville on a Sunday morning, we at Emmanuel Nashville would love to have you join us. We'd be so honored. I keep one of these cards with me wherever I go. Uh, and on this is what we call the Emmanuel Mantra. It's simple. One, I'm a complete idiot. Two, my future is incredibly bright. Three, anyone can get in on this. <laughs> so come to Emmanuel. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 30. Please follow as I read. <clears throat> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is God's word. So, here's the key to everything. Christianity is not us proving ourselves to God, but Christianity is God giving himself to us and on terms of grace in Christ. We then receive Christ with the empty hands of faith, and then we start following him with that same faith. And it isn't easy. We in whom the Holy Spirit now lives, and the Holy Spirit is the primary topic of verses 1 through 17 here in the chapter. We in whom the Holy Spirit now lives are stuck with the same earthly existence as everyone else, and that's good. 
We don't want to be above it all. Only a suffering church can serve a suffering world. But Romans 8, 18 through 30, these verses are here to answer a question. These verses explain to us why we do not fear that commitment. We do not fear that vulnerability. We are not running from real life because, as these verses explain, we know where this journey is going. Our pathway to our future glory looks like ordinary, everyday, mortal existence. But as we live that life, here's what we're banking on. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, and that's how he summarizes the whole of our lives, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, in verses 18 through 25, the first part of our passage today, Paul builds a sidebar. He's been explaining how the Holy Spirit enters into our experience, how the Holy Spirit assures us of the love of God and so forth. But after mentioning our sufferings in verse 17, and that always gets our attention, Paul digresses, he steps aside, builds a sidebar. Now in verses 18 to 25, he shows us our sufferings as part of a much larger picture. And then he's going to return in verse 26 with more about the Holy Spirit. But in verses 18 through 25, this first section, I'm struck by two things. One, I'm struck in verses 18 through 25 by the magnitude of the gospel, the Christian gospel. The one thing it isn't is petty and small. In these verses, Paul brings into the gospel nothing less than the renewal of the whole creation. We see those three words, the whole creation, in verse 22. That's how big the gospel is. Leslie Newbegin explains something really interesting about the Bible. He says, The Bible is unique among the sacred books of the world's religions in that the Bible is in structure, in its structure, a history of the cosmos. The Bible claims to show us the shape, the structure, the origin, the goal, not merely of human history, but of cosmic history. So how does the Bible begin? the creation of the universe. How does the Bible end? The recreation of the universe. The gospel is huge. The one thing the Christian gospel is not is handy tips for upgrading our lifestyles from an average five to an impressive eight on a scale of one to ten. And a little psychological uplift as you go into your stressful Monday morning. The gospel shows us how big God's grace toward us really is. And therefore, how our lives are really worth living. The second thing that strikes me about these verses <clears throat> is their honesty. First, the gospel is massive. Secondly, the gospel is honest. Paul admits here what we might be embarrassed to admit. He says, I consider, in verse 18 that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing and so forth. In other words, 
You know, guys, I have thought about it. I have asked the question, is Jesus worth it? And we at times are tempted to think thoughts like this. Well, you know, maybe for a million dollars I would walk away from Jesus. Or for this or for that. So, let's be honest. With Paul, let's consider it. The Bible says that our sufferings <clears throat> are lying to us at one level. Our sufferings feel like they are robbing us of life. They are robbing us of our future. The Bible says that our sufferings, in fact, are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory. Gravitas. We hate being trivialized. God hates us being trivialized. The world treats us like a voting block. The world treats us like a market niche. God treats us as sons and daughters in the family. So the true worth of our lives now can be measured not by now, but only in terms of eternity. Our present existence cannot satisfy us. This life is good. But this life is good the way air is good. We enjoy breathing. It comes in handy. But when we're hungry, air cannot satisfy no matter how much we inhale. And we are hungry for the weight of glory here in a world of breezy air. And God promises to satisfy our glory hunger. I love how Peter Kraft puts it in his book on heaven. Suppose both death and hell were utterly defeated. Suppose the fight was fixed. Suppose God took you on a crystal ball trip into your future and you saw, despite everything, your sin, your smallness, your stupidity, you could have, free for the asking, your whole crazy heart's deepest desire, heaven, eternal joy. Would you not return fearless and singing what can earth do to you if you are guaranteed heaven? To fear the worst earthly loss would be like a millionaire fearing the loss of a penny. Less a scratch on a penny. So here's why we millionaires keep on with Jesus. He is rich with grace and he's a big spender. Here's why we keep on with Jesus no matter what. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. J.B. Phillips, in his amazing paraphrase, reworded that to say this, the whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. So the creation is alert to and waiting for uh, the day when we will become royal again, we will become noble again, we will become trustworthy stewards of the creation again, as the risen Jesus is. The Greek scholar James Hope Moulton tells us about this word translated eager longing. He says that, that word suggests someone craning their neck to see what's coming out in the future. When we look out in the future, what's out there? Is there, is there something we have to brace ourselves against? No, it's the revealing of the sons of God in our glory. And even now, this verse is saying, 
we're not living in a universe indifferent to our pain. The creation waits with eager longing for us. When we finally show up as the royalty God created us to be. So, the whole of creation is, this is saying, God has built into reality a forward tilt that works in our favor. We're not making the future unfold. God has a plan, and God has structured into reality our eternal advantage. God has structured into reality not our endless defeat and frustration and disappointment and humiliation. Sometimes it feels like it, doesn't it? Because the futility of this world is formidable. Verses 20 and 21. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Um, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When we are glorious again as God's royal children, exercising authoritative stewardship over the, all the lower creation forever, the, the creation will experience our authority as freedom. And God will shake the cosmic champagne bottle and the cork will pop out and that is going to be fun. But right now, there's a reason why poets, novelists, filmmakers, thinkers of various kinds have deeply felt, as we all feel, that Sometimes it just seems like this, this world is for nothing. You, you, you try to build a life in this world, but it's like building a sandcastle down on the beach. The tide changes, the waves come in, wash over that sandcastle. Pretty soon you can't even tell there was anything there at all. Why does that keep happening? It's not as though it just happens now and then. It keeps happening. This is the story. Why? Is it because we just haven't invented better sand. No. The reason is, way back in the Garden of Eden, that's how deep the historic roots of our problem are. Back then, that long ago, God said to us, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Hmm. So, Bob Dylan, for starters, was right when he wrote, broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts, streets are filled with broken hearts. Broken words never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. He's right. Thank you, Bob Dylan, for saying it. The gospel just goes further. The gospel agrees with that and says God did, in fact, create the universe for glory, not brokenness. Paul says here, not willingly. 
because the problem of futility isn't a flaw in God's design. Futility cuts against the grain of reality. And it isn't intrinsic. It isn't permanent. Because 2,000 years ago, a second Adam, he came and he also died. But he rose again with a new life that won't stop until the whole universe sparkles. And we're going to be there by his grace, thanks to him alone. And we're going to experience what the prophet foretold, that you will go out, go out in joy. We're going to wake up every workday in the new heaven and the new earth, and we're going to think, huh, I'm five minutes into my day. I'm already loving this. This is great. I don't even need coffee. <laughs> you will go out in joy and be led for Joy is positive energy. We will never get tired. We will live with full exertion and never get tired. Like, wow. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace, wholeness, no psychological scars, no backward glances, no if-onlys, no what-ifs, no need for do-overs. You will be led forth in peace, wholeness, completeness. I like my life. You're going to go throughout eternity meeting new friends, meeting new people from all over the world, uh, the redeemed of the ages, and every single person there will like you. <laughs> and the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Gosh, guys, that's our future. That's how big the gospel is. We need a big hope. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation, there's that phrase, the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. He says, the whole creation, because it isn't as though there's just a problem over here and there's another problem over there, but a million things everywhere are not working well. But God is turning this massive ordeal into the pains of childbirth. He's turning the universe into a maternity ward where new life is appearing by God's constant care so that nature, red in tooth and claw, is not the conclusion. It's just one chapter. And, and God's story is leading us to a whole new creation where we will be forever new. Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So God has, if you love Jesus, God has already resurrected your heart from the dead. There's some life in you now, newborn life. You're feeling longings and stirrings and yearnings uh, that at some time before you didn't think were even real. And a person being prepared for this new universe by making you more alert and sensitive than you've ever been before with a new heart given by the Holy Spirit, you don't feel less groanings, you feel new groanings. This is not escapism. C.S. Lewis called it an inconsolable longing. It can just you know what he means. It, it can pierce your heart at any time. You can be in church. You can be listening to music. You can be holding your newborn baby. You can be saying goodbye to a friend for the last time. 
And Lewis called it the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited, but we know within. It's like a nostalgia that we feel, but not looking to the past, it's looking to the future. And when we experience that inconsolable longing, what is happening in that moment is that we're experiencing eternal life in 2019. The incompleteness of this world right now, it's not mocking our longings, it is stirring our longings. When you feel that, it's not because there's something wrong with you. It's because the Spirit lives within you. And here's what we're longing for. I love this part. Not heaven as an ethereal, cloudy existence, massed choirs up in the clouds. Do you really want to do that forever? But... Heaven as a whole new creation. Heaven will be very human. He calls it here the redemption of our bodies in verse 23. Nobody else in the first century would have said that other than the Christians because the, the um, uh, convincing and, and compelling philosophers, the Stoics, for example, they despised the human body. Paul put the resurrection of our bodies, the humblest part of us, as the pinnacle of the gospel. He calls it our hope in verses 24 and 25. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So there goes the prosperity gospel out the door right there. Your best life now, right? I can't find your best life. I can't find that here in these verses. Hope that is seen now is not hope. The real gospel gets us thinking along this line. Hmm. Okay, this world is a nice place. I really like it. Maybe in the new earth. I had this thought earlier today. Maybe in the new earth we'll get up in the morning and say to the Lord, Lord, would it be okay with you if we airlift California to Tennessee today? Because it would really be fun to have all those friends there in Nashville. And we could have the, you know, the West Coast. We could go surfing in Nashville. And we'd have the mountains and the desert and cool music. And, and then tomorrow, you know, move it back. And maybe we could airlift Tennessee to L.A. and rearrange reality. I mean, we're not stuck with it. I don't know. Why am I talking about this? I... <laughs> Prosperity gospel. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the real gospel gets us thinking like this. This world is really a nice place. Yeah, that's where I took off. This is a nice place. God made it. I like it. He's going to redeem it. It's going to last forever. But if I had to choose, and every one of us does, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than have riches untold. I don't mind living this life now 
waiting for a happiness so big this world can't handle it. That's what I'm banking on. Here's how that big hope makes a difference right now. It's the last word of verse 25, patience. See that word? That's the word we skip over when we read the Bible because we hate patience. I hate it. You do. Let's all admit it. That's why the word is here. It's how the early church prevailed. They had no power, they had no prestige, and they won. How? They just didn't quit. This patience is not lying in a hammock, sipping iced tea, waiting. This patience is holding a plank position <laughs> until the coach says, you're done. This Patience is rugged endurance. This patience is resilience. That is how the early church prevailed. For example, we get a keyhole glimpse into the early church. If we, we're not going to do it right now, but if we turned over to, to chapter 16 and Paul's greeting all of his friends there in the church in Rome, it's very interesting to notice how he talks about them. For example, they risked their necks. I'm so not against miracles, but there's not one person in chapter 16 about whom Paul says he worked a miracle. What Paul does say is they risked their necks. He worked hard. My fellow prisoners and so forth. How did they prevail? They just kept going. They put one foot in front of the other, and they kept going with patience and endurance. The early theologians called patience the highest of all virtues. I don't think we do that anymore. We need to get back to that. It's in the Bible. They believed God is not in a hurry, so why should they be? They believed God is in control, so they felt no need to be in control. They believed God is powerful, so they did not need to get pushy. Instead, they just kept going. Living for Christ in simple, honorable, sometimes risky and hard ways, trusting everything to Him. Bishop Cyprian wrote to his suffering people in the third century, quote, As servants and worshipers of God, let us show the patience that we learn from the heavenly teachings. For that virtue we have in common with God. And He helps us right now stay patient. Verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now Paul returns to the, his teaching about the work of the Holy Spirit. That's why likewise is at the front of verse 26. He's linking verse 26 back with verse 16. So here's another way the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer. We need help in prayer. I do. Jesus prayed all night. I have hard, a hard time praying for five minutes. Maybe you do too. Why? Why is it hard for us to pray? Why is it sometimes... It's not just that we're distracted. Sometimes we're so overwhelmed. It's difficult. What do, what do I say to God right now? I'm so defeated. I'm so confused. I'm so bewildered. I'm really struck by the singular noun weakness here. 
The Spirit helps us in our weakness rather than the plural weaknesses. Our problem is not that we have weaknesses here and there. It's not as though we have all these experiences, these various kinds of experiences in life, and then, oh yeah, there's also this experience of weakness over here too. Instead, weakness is the foundation for everything we experience. We have never known in all our lives one nanosecond of non-weakness. Weakness pervades everything we do and say and are. Remember in The, the Great Divorce by C.S. Lewis, how he characterized us. We, in that book, we're, we're sort of ghost-like, shadowy, semi-transparent beings as opposed to the solid, uh, formidable people from heaven. But the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit does not despise us in our weakness. The Lord is not saying to you today, you know, get it together, people. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. Right here, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We tend to think, well, I'm, it's okay right now, but if things really get bad, I can always pray. But what if they get so bad, we can't even pray? What then? The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In other words, God enters into our suffering. God enters into our incapacity. God enters into our groanings and our anguish and makes those His own. He who searches our hearts, He's so aware, so alert, so involved. He who searches our hearts moment by moment knows what is the mind of the Spirit. So when we're crushed but bowing down before the Lord, not even able to utter a prayer, at that moment when we cannot pray, God searches our hearts and finds there the mind of the Spirit who is interceding for us. We would never know this except the Bible told us. This is amazing. Ole Christian Hallesby was a Norwegian pastor and theologian during World War II, and when the Nazis um, captured the nation, he went into the underground, spent some time in a concentration camp. Here's what he wrote. I have witnessed the death struggle of some of my Christian friends Pain has coursed through their bodies and souls, but this was not their worst experience. I have seen them gaze at me anxiously and ask, what will become of me when I am no longer able to think a sustained thought or pray to God? It is blessed to be able to say to them, do not worry about the prayers that you cannot pray. You yourself are a prayer to God at this moment. All that is within you cries out to Him. And he hears all the pleas that your suffering soul and body are making to him with groanings which cannot be uttered. But if you should have an occasional restful moment, thank God that you already have been reconciled to him and that you are now resting in the everlasting arms. This is one reason why Christian people die really well. When you are too heartbroken to pray, it does not mean you are not one of God's saints. God's helping us in our weakness and despair is His way with His saints, according to verse 27. 
when we are in despair, God meets us in that place very wonderfully. He isn't asking you for your strength. He's helping you in your weakness. And isn't that why we love him? Verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, who are open to God, who are grateful to God, putting our hope in God. For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I'm going to blitz through verses 28 through 30, but they're basically making one massive, glorious point. This is a bold claim, right? All things work together for good. I think, what, I think the, the, the line we need to cross this morning is to swallow this whole and to decide today we're just going to believe it and not qualify it to death. Because in our minds there's a continuum. And over at one end is all things work together for good. At the other end of the continuum is nothing is good. And in between is the mushy middle that says, well, here's hoping. And we tend to live in that mushy middle mentally way too much so that we're not terrified, but neither are we fearless. And God wants to take us today all the way over into fearless confidence before God. Confidence in God. All things work together for good. That's why the verse is here. So really, although that mushy middle feels like a safe bet, that is actually the least believable position. I mean, what kind of pathetic God would tell us some things work together for good and then expect us to build a courageous life on that foundation? If there's any hope for us at all, it must cover the worst that life throws at us. Either nothing is good and we have no future or all things work together for good and our sufferings are accelerating us and lifting us into our eternal glory. But let's not dabble in the shallows. Let's either reject the gospel bitterly or let's accept the gospel cheerfully. And today is our day to decide. What are we waiting for? Here is why we can believe the gospel with abandon. The reason is Jesus. 2,000 years ago, God came into this broken world. He came as an egoless nobody named Jesus. He loved us. We hated him for it. We crucified him on the darkest day of human history when everything was on the line. We together chose evil. And God raised him from it all and bent our evil around to serve our redemption. That's that event, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so long ago, that is the key to life. That's what's going on in this world. Aren't you grateful God didn't give you the job of being the devil? What a loser he is. You got to hand it to him, he tries. But the harder he tries, the more he serves God. God has wrapped his arms around all things. God has wrapped his arms around all of your life, all that you are, all your regrets. And God is holding you. So you don't have to make sure you always win. Jesus lost. turned out pretty well for him. And you're following him. How could it be otherwise with God as our Father? 
So point, Paul's point here in Romans is that if we know God at all, we know that God is for us in all things. We need to settle it in our minds today that God can be trusted in all things, not understood, but trusted. It's why Samuel Rutherford, the Scottish pastor of 300 years ago, he wrote a letter to a friend. Sinners can do nothing but make wounds that Christ may heal them, make debts that Christ may pay them, make falls that He may raise them, make deaths that He may resurrect them, and dig hells for themselves that He may ransom them. That's your Christ. He is for you in all things. So you are the right person in the right place at the right time to fulfill God's good purpose for you here in this world, and God does nothing in a second-rate way, including you. We can't see the glory God is creating yet, but that's why Romans 8 is here. We don't live by appearances. We live by promises. So, God has a plan. His plan includes you. God is working His plan, and He's a professional. He's really good at it. Let's look at God's plan, verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers, that's us. And those whom He predestined, He also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. Those whom He justified, He also glorified. So the whole point of these last two verses is to change the narrative that's scrolling past our minds every day. And the narrative in our minds that's deeply embedded, it's the default of our sort of mood and self-perception, the, the, the narrative is, I'm a loser. I don't matter. I've fallen through the cracks. Not even God sees me. What is the point of anything? I'm worthless. I'm damaged beyond repair. So why even try? Now, that narrative, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Verses 29 and 30 simply change the subject. Establish a new scroll by. By saying, let's turn our eyes from our wretchedness, which is real, to God's goodness, which is more real. Let's think less about the misery we create and more about the glory God creates. So verses 29 and 30 are saying to us, if you are in Christ, the deepest meaning of your life is not what you do, but what God does. If you feel like your life is a random sequence of pointless and chancy whatevers with tedious boredom and disappointment throughout, if that's how you feel about your life, you are completely wrong. The truth of your life is that God has undertaken for you. Underneath are the everlasting arms. God has a plan. He's working His plan. God's plan for you is your everlasting magnificence. So, Romans 8, 29 and 30 are here to make us in our generation confident, cheerful, pain-tolerant, 
tough hombres living for Jesus, come what may. They explain how verse 28 can be true. We know that God, all things work together for good, and here's why we know, because of God's overall plan. And so what Paul does in 29 and 30 is he has this table out in front of him, so to speak, and, and he takes out this architectural drawing, this great big blueprint, right? And he spreads it out, and he says, come on in, guys, I want to show you something. Here's eternity past. Here is your moment in time. There is eternity future, way out there. Now, time, all of human history, is the briefest parenthesis within the vast field of eternity. God's plan stretches from eternity past through time into eternity future, it's big. What did God do in eternity past? God whom He foreknew. That does not mean He was just aware of us ahead of time. That means God chose us. But God did not choose us the way a computer mailing operation chooses us for a, 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 an envelope coming in the mail so that we can win a sweepstakes. Resident. God chose us by knowing us ahead of time, by setting His heart on us, by understanding us, by getting involved with us. He foreknew. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. That's an eternity past too. In other words, predestined. He predetermined your final destiny. You are a person of destiny. You will be with Christ. You will be like Christ, to the glory of Christ, among many others. You will be amazing, like Christ. That's your destiny. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Those whom He predestined, He also called. Okay, now we're just parachuted into history, into time, into your experience. That's describing your conversion. When you crossed the line and you decided to put your trust in Jesus, you believed something else before, now you believe in Jesus. That was because God called you. And if you're thinking, well, Ray, okay, that's all very well for you, but, you know, God hasn't called me, and, and if it started so long ago, like, I'm too late. No. The reason why you're thinking that thought and it's bothering you and it's troubling you is that God is calling you. Your problem is not that God has left you out. Your problem is you've left God out, and He's not mad at you. He is saying to you today, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's his call. Embrace it. And those who may call, he also justified. Why is that there? That also happens in time because, because we're sinners. So that takes us to the cross. And Jesus lived the virtuous life for us in our place. We've never lived. He died the atoning death for us, in our place, we don't want to die. And when we reach out and with the empty hands of faith and receive Him, God reinstates us in His good graces forever, thanks to Jesus, no thanks to us at all. We just receive it. That's justification. Then, those whom He justified, He also glorified. And He actually, now we're looking out into eternity future, but He puts it in the past tense because it's so certain. Your future is certain. It's already written. If you're in Christ, you're going to be fine. God has decided that. We're just stumblers. 
we Christians, but we just stumble toward Jesus. That's the key to life. Stumble toward Jesus. God's got this. And last point. The great thing is, everybody God starts out with an eternity past, He ends up with an eternity future. Those whom He foreknew, He also glorified. Nobody falls through the cracks along the way. All right. That's the end of my sermon. And here's what I want you to do. Here's what God wants you to do. We can't cause this. We can't earn this. We can't deserve this. We can't sustain this. You know what we can do? We can say, thank you. Thank you. We can say that. Let's say it. God be with you.